Welcome to the Mailer Campbell podcast. This is a series of discussions and interviews designed to provide coaches with inspiring learning content. I'm Debbie Aurelius, and I'm delighted to say this episode features John Stokes. John trained originally as a clinical psychologist and worked at the Tavistock Clinic and Institute in London, where he became director of the adult psychotherapy department before founding the organisational consulting service Tavistock Consulting, which he led as director for five years. In 2000, John left the NHS to create Stokes and Jolly with Professor Richard Jolly of the London Business School. John has worked as a leadership advisor, a business psychologist, and he has 20 years experience of coaching at CEO and board level in a variety of organisations. John's also a senior fellow at the Oxford University Said Business School. He brings a great depth of understanding of psychology, group and organisational dynamics to the challenges faced by leaders. Some of John's publications include Leadership and Executive Coaching in the Sage Handbook of Coaching and several chapters in The Unconscious at Work, edited by Anton Obholzer. John distills all of that insight into this conversation, which centres on the developmental relationship. It's a fascinating discussion and John signposts some excellent learning points and some challenges for new and for experienced coaches. So let's get into the conversation. I'm delighted to welcome John Stokes to the podcast today. So John, welcome. Hi Debbie, nice to be with you today. Oh, excellent. Thank you so much. That's a really impressive biography, John, and I'm really delighted to have the opportunity to speak to you about our topic today, which is the developmental relationship. So could you tell me a little more about how your interest in this subject came about? Sure. Well, I think uh, it all began really when I was sent to what I felt was a pretty dreadful uh, boarding school at the age of nine years old. And there I found most of the teachers not really very sympathetic. I certainly didn't feel they empathised with how I was feeling. And there was one exception, though, which was uh, a maths teacher who I knew as Mr Hinks. And Mr Hinks, for some reason, took an interest in my development. And I will always remember the fact that he seemed to be interested in helping me to learn rather than just to teach me facts or pieces of information. And, well, as you can perhaps hear from what I'm saying, I I feel grateful to him still for his having been prepared to spend the time and take the interest in in me. And I think this is the essence of a developmental relationship, somebody who puts somebody else before themselves. Yes, absolutely. So did that experience inform your latest studies? Well, I would would say unconsciously rather than consciously. But I think we, we choose uh, professions and work sometimes for quite deep and sometimes unconscious reasons, what motivates us. And I think in my case, giving people an experience of, of a developmental relationship, I'd say I'm interested in adult development as, as opposed to child development. And I think it's, it's therapeutic for oneself in a sense to be able to offer that to others. So I, I would say certainly it sort of goes back to that time. I would also say that my parents also were, were good good listeners and took an interest in me. It's not that they were bad people or anything like that at all. But this this particular, uh, as I say, master at school is somebody I, I, I remember well. 
And I think I also found the institution uh, of this prep school, small boys stuck out in the country, not seeing their parents for extended periods of time, a very puzzling experience. And I think this also influenced my choice of ultimate profession of, of working with leaders in organizations to, to make them better leaders and better organizations. So I think that also influenced me in, in choice of career. Yeah, absolutely. Thinking about your studies and training as a clinical psychologist, did you embark on studying about the developmental relationship or is that something that sort of emerged through your studies? Oh, it's 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 more of a recent idea. I spent, um, as you've said, the first uh, 20 years or so of my career working in the health service, training in clinical psychology, training also in psychoanalysis. And that started out, first of all, working in what's called a therapeutic community. And this was a, a place for teenagers who had various sorts of mental distress. And we worked with them with the idea that the community itself could be therapeutic. And I think these words therapeutic, helping, developing, are somewhat interchangeable. Uh, certainly interchangeable in the sense that I think often the same kinds of things are going on. And creating, as I say, conditions in which youngsters can can grow up better is the idea that really a community can be developmental. So it isn't just an individual that's developmental. I think we live either in developmental or anti-developmental circumstances of one kind or another. And so is the study of the developmental relationship quite a modern study or is that something that people have been considering for a long time? Well, I would say since the beginning of time, in a sense. Yeah. I, mean, I think uh, Greek philosophers talk about uh, developmental relationship in one way or another, how to help a student, how to think. So I think it, it goes back a millennia, really. But mm. I think we, we, we really go to Freud as the first person to study it in a systematic way. So he deliberately created conditions in which what he called evenly suspended attention is what the therapist or psychoanalyst needed to do to listen to everything that the patient was saying or indeed doing without judgment. So to allow in the mind of the psychoanalyst associations and thoughts and feelings to occur without either prejudging the patient's statements or indeed prejudging one's own responses or reactions to that and that he believed that through that you could get to a deeper sense of the, of the meaning behind the patient's word. So I would I would say he was the first person to study it systematically. And then following on from him, various other psychoanalysts have talked about it in, in different sorts of ways. The psychoanalyst Wilfred Bion, who worked at the Tavistock Clinic many years ago now, mm. described it in the phrase, to, to listen without memory or desire, mm. which is a, a state of mind in which you don't desire change in the client or the patient, but that you listen without judgment. And uh, he even counseled the idea that you, you listen as if you've never met this person before, which I think is actually quite an interesting way to listen to somebody. Because when we listen, we're not really listening only to the other person. Our listening is affected by prior experiences with that person or people who remind us of that person or assumptions that we might have, stereotypes that we might have. So I think it's something that every coach can do uh, right from the beginning of learning to coach, which is to listen to this person as if you knew nothing about them, as if you were fresh to that person. It's a way of clearing one's own mind. Yeah, that's a really interesting concept. And it does make you think that that's so true. You do sort of listen for incremental information on top of the information you feel you already have. So, you know, what an excellent challenge that is. 
And, and I think it relates to something that's become obviously much more of interest these days, but mindfulness, which obviously comes from a, a, another very ancient tradition going back to, to, to Buddha, which is what, 1500 BC, I think. So this idea of getting into a state of mind in which you can be aware of, which according to at least the Buddhists, is the only thing we can really know is the present moment. We can be in the present. Otherwise, we're imagining things about the past or we're imagining things about the future. And that state of mind of, of uh, mindfulness, which John Kabat-Zinn, who's probably the founder or certainly the most famous promoter of mindfulness, defines as follows. Paying attention on purpose in the present moment and non-judgmentally. I'll say it again. Paying attention on purpose, so deliberately pay attention, in the present moment and non-judgmentally. So you can see there's an overlap between all these different strands of thinking, um, which... Um, people who've been interested in this broad topic of development and that they all subscribe, I think, that development happens out of a relationship between two people. So the, subsequent to, to the psychoanalysts in the early days, people may be familiar with the name of Carl Rogers, who in a sense invented counselling. And he trained originally in psychoanalysis, but he became frustrated with its theoretical, over-theoretical approach as he felt it and the sort of debates and arguments that were going on and broke away from that tradition and decided that he would try and define precisely what the conditions are in which somebody develops through counselling. Okay. So for him, the, the, the conditions for counselling are listening, non, again, non-judgmentally, that phrase again, mm -hmm. um, but with an attitude of genuineness towards uh, oneself, to being genuine in the present moment, being empathic and being warm. And there's now plenty of evidence following up from that, that indeed if, if, a, if a helper or a developer or a therapist, I'm using those words sort of interchangeably, if they set up the right conditions, then development happens. But if you don't set up those conditions, then development doesn't happen. It's equally true of a parent-child relationship or a teacher-pupil relationship, as I've described for myself uh, in the early days, or indeed a manager to a worker or indeed um, healthy leadership in the sense of the relationship between leader and follower. I think they all have essentially these conditions, and that's really what I've been, been thinking about in recent years and what I'm, I'm so pleased to be talking about today. That's fascinating that it's not just the non-judgmental listening element of it, but I really like the fact that Carl Rogers has built back into it that sense of empathy and warmth, that very sort of human connection that's part of the relationship. So it's mm. very interesting. Mm. And of course, th this this goes back to the mother-baby relationship. I mean, that's the first foundational, hopefully developmental for most of us, experience. Not, of, not for all of us, but for most of us, that's a developmental experience, mother or mother substitute. And it's key, really, how, how that's experienced by the baby, that what the mother is doing there is, is taking in the concerns of the infant who may be crying, obviously doesn't know why it's crying, what it's crying about. And you'll hear the mother say, well, you're crying because you're hungry. You're crying because you're wet. You're crying because you're cold. The child, infant, doesn't, of course, understand language at this point in time, but understands something, understands that it's being understood. Mm -hmm. And it's that being understood experience, which is fundamentally what the mother is doing. They're not understanding it because the infant has said something, clearly. It's because they've expressed something. And it's that staying with the uncertainty of not knowing what's wrong with the baby. Those of you who've 
had children know that you spend a lot of time being extremely puzzled. What on earth is wrong mm -hmm. with my baby, my child? And you just have to live with it and stay with the uncertainty and allow some meaning to emerge in your mind. If you haven't had children, you've certainly had experiences of being with children, a similar thing. You don't understand a child because they explain themselves to you or because you've got some theory of children. It's because you have an experience internally of what you believe, empathize, you could call it, with, with the child's experience. And making sense of that, putting it into words, is what, what the parent is doing. And by that process of being aware of and then making meaning out of what is essentially unmeaningful experience, it's a developmental process. And, and I think it's essentially the same, the same thing in all developmental relationships. This person who's paying you attention is really focused purely on understanding you only. And of course, that's very rare in our adult lives because mm -hmm. even with our own families, they've got their own concerns and all the rest of it. But to have somebody whose job is only and, and just to focus on you is a particularly unusual experience. Yes, it is. And, and it's interesting you talk about the mother in the example you gave, sort of holding that confusion on behalf of the child. So is it not necessary for someone in the developmental relationship to be an expert in the subject they're considering? So certainly they don't need to be an expert. I mean, it's complex. Obviously, if they're totally ignorant of the thing at all, then it's unlikely they'll be able to listen very well to something. I mean, I'll give you an example. There was a violin teacher in uh, the, the Juilliard School in New York, famous music school. And her name was Dorothy DeLay. And she taught generations of violinists. Now, she could play the violin, but by her own account, she wasn't particularly good at playing the violin. It wasn't because she was a good player of the violin that she was able to teach. There's a very famous violinist, which some of you may have heard of, it's called Itzhak Perlman. He's still alive. And, um, you know, one of probably the world's greatest violinists. And when he was talking about his experience of being taught by Dorothy DeLay, he said, he said as follows, I would come and play for her. And if something was not quite right, it wasn't like she was going to kill me. She would ask questions about what you thought of particular phrases, where the top of the phrase was, and so on. We would have a very friendly, interesting discussion about things like, why do you think it should sound like this? And what do you think of that? I'm not quite used to this way of approaching things. So that's Itzhak Perlman. And you could hopefully see it's exactly the same thing as a coach. She's simply asking questions about what's his experience of his playing. And if one built on that, he would have probably said things like, well, that was a, what did you make of that sound? Oh, I thought that was rather good. Well, what did you do that made that happen? Oh, that was terrible. Okay, so what were you doing that made it sound terrible? So these are questions. Now, clearly, she needs to understand a violin has some strings and there's a bow and various bits and pieces like that. But she's not, she's not at all talking from the position of expert. What she is, is an expert in helping somebody else develop. Yes, absolutely. What a brilliant example. And actually, helpfully leads me to ask, how can we relate the developmental relationship to coaching? Okay, so the way I define coaching, not a unique definition, but I like a nice simple one. I, I say it's the art and science of enabling another person to develop a skill. The art and science of enabling another person to develop a skill. So various words in there, art, science, enabling, developing and skill. And we could unpack 
you know, in some detail all of those things, which I'm not proposing to do. But the point is, even a simple definition like that raises all sorts of questions. Well, how does all this really happen? And some years back, I uh, went with my family to observe gorillas in, in Rwanda. And we went because I was interested and I persuaded them to be interested in the idea of observing gorillas in the wild, which you, you can do. And you trek up the side of a volcano and find a gorilla family. And what I was most impressed with in watching this gorilla family was the, the mother, the way the mother was playing with her small child. And it seemed to me that she was, she was really coaching her, her, her infant. So what was happening was gorillas are essentially vegetarians, but they also like to have an, an ant or a termite every so often. And to get an ant or a termite, you have to basically stick a stick into, into one of their nests and get them out. So I was watching this mother gorilla and she would find a sort of suitable stick, give it to her child. The child would sort of muck about with the stick as, just as a human child would for a bit until it got bored with that. And then she would take the stick and poke it into a nest and get out a nice ant or larvae or whatever it was and give it to the child. And the child thought this was great, we could do this also. So, of course, started to poke with the stick and eventually, by sort of trial and error process, learnt how to get an ant larvae out of, of a termite's nest or whatever it was. So I think that's very, very similar. It's the developmental relationship. It's got nothing to do with going to university or reading books. It's got to do with being in, a, I think, exactly the same state of mind. She's empathizing with her infant. She knows she needs to teach her infant to find food for itself. And by some combination of role modeling and play, and I think comparing coaching with, with a play space is, is also a useful analogy, at least. Serious play, it's not play for no purpose. It was, it's play for a purpose. So I think there are lots of elements there. So really what I'm saying is it's a natural, inbuilt, animal-based skill. Probably all social animals to varying degrees have this skill. And we're not all equally good at it. Some of us have forgotten how to do it because we spent so much time reading books or whatever we've been doing. And other people probably were never very good at it in the first place or they didn't have a mother who was very good at it in the first place. But it doesn't mean you can't learn to do it. And, it, and it's a certain basic set of skills which... Obviously, there are various theories, but you know, the GROW model, John Whitmore's GROW model, which I expect all our listeners have come across, you know, is a beautifully simple model and is, in fact, based originally on, on Carl Rogers's work. Um, and although it's not often, that link is often not made. And I think this is, this is the point I would quite like to make, that I think in the coaching world, it's as if all this stuff was suddenly invented, what, 10 years ago, 20 years ago? I don't know where you put it quite. Well, that's absolutely not true. Um, these things have been known for centuries. A lot of what coaching involves is not something that's particularly unusual or remarkable or brilliant. Most of it is variants of common sense and a bit of ancient wisdom, to be honest. But of course, how you deliver that is, is all the, the all-important thing, like we were saying with Dorothy DeLay. It's all about how she asks questions that enables Itzhak Perlman to play his violin better. That's such a helpful way of thinking about it. Yes, thank you. And and I wonder, is there any research that can reveal something to us about the developmental relationship? Certainly. Let me just say one thing that I would like to uh, also talk about, another author that I think your listeners might be interested in, which is the work of, of Ed, Ed Schein, who um, anybody who looks at organisational psychology will, will come across him and will give some references at the end, I believe. But uh, he makes a very useful distinction between three sorts of helping relationship. So he calls it the helping relationship, but effectively it's the, the same thing. And the three types are the expert, 
who might be an expert advisor who might be advising you on something, so a careers advisor, so they can say, well, you could do this, you could do that, you could do the other, but they don't make the decision for you, sometimes rather frustratingly, because we'd like other people to tell us what to do, but it isn't what a careers advisor does. So there's an advisor type of help, there's a, a, a doctor type of help, so that's a problem who, who takes the problem off your hands and, and, and fixes it for you. Doctor or fixer, I, I call it, because we don't want to just talk about doctors here, but any expert who takes a problem away from somebody um, and fixes it for them. And then the third type he called process consultant, which is a slightly obscure term in some ways. But what he's really meaning there is that the, the job of the consultant or the coach is to focus on the process that's going on in the room. And it's by focusing on the process, again, that you get what he calls help or I should call development to take place. But it's not by being by being an expert and using expertise on the topic. It's by being an expert at development. So just to go back to your question about the research, yes, there has been a lot of research, and mainly in the fields uh, of counselling and to some extent psychotherapy and, and coaching to a degree is, is catching up with this now. But I think there are lots of good reasons for thinking there's, again, overlap between them, as I hope I've explained. So really quite early on in counselling in the 70s, really, a researcher by the name of Michael Lambert, who had studied the difference between counselling that had been effective and counselling that had been less effective, not ineffective, but less effective. And what distinguishes these two sorts of counselling outcomes? And he said he thought there were four ingredients that made a difference. The first one he called context, in other words, the context of the client. And he reckoned about 40% of the variance, that is the difference between the effective and the less effective counselling work, was attributable to things that had nothing to do with the counsellor. It was to do with the context of the client's life. And I'm saying all this obviously in the context of coaching and for coaches to bear in mind that if you if you just map that across, something like 40% of the difference between yourself being effective and somebody else being less effective than you has got to do with the context of our clients' lives. And I think it's just a kind of good reminder that we're not the centre of the universe really when all this is going on. Yes. And secondly, he described in addition to context, relationship, meaning was the relationship experienced as positive, useful, constructive, developmental, if you will, by the client, by the client indeed. And we also know from this research that clients and counsellors, and I think clients and coaches will be the same, don't necessarily judge the relationship in the same way. So the only way to find out if your relationship with your client is developmental is, is to ask in one way or another. That, because your estimation of it will, won't be particularly accurate. So getting feedback is, is, is therefore critical for that purpose. So 30% of the variance between effective and less effective counselling was, was to do with the, the quality of the relationship as experienced by the client. And then there were two other factors, one of which he called hope. In other words, an expectation that the counselling would be helpful, is being helpful, would continue to be helpful. And I think it's important that both parties actually feel that. There's evidence subsequently that suggests that. So this hopefulness is what's called in medicine placebo, the placebo effect. But the placebo effect tells you nothing. It doesn't explain why it's happening. And, and I think hopefulness and hopeful expectancy are both states of mind in which people feel a greater sense of agency or empowered and, and therefore kind of get better. They figure out how to make themselves better, if you will. And the uh, fourth ingredient is, is the one that, of course, we spend a lot of time talking about in the coaching industry, which is method and technique. So 
40% for context, 30% for relationship, 15% for hope, and 15% for method. Now, having said that, it's important to say that doesn't mean to say that all your methods are utterly insignificant or only 15% significant. Remember, it's statistics. So to understand statistics, it's a grouped statistic. So it's an average. What it is saying is that the differences in techniques between counsellors accounted for only 15% of the variance. So if we translate that across to coaching, it would argue that only 15% of the difference between effective coaching and less effective coaching has to do with the school of coaching you come from. And I think it's, it's very likely to be similar. The studies haven't been done, but all the evidence, I hope that I've sort of described in one way or another, would suggest that it's much more to do with the conditions you create as a coach, uh, and clients will tell us this spontaneously, that make a, a coaching work or not work. Now, when you describe this to coaches, they say, well, what about presentation coaching? What about expert topic coaching of one kind or another? True. but if you look at it a bit more closely or think about it a bit more deeply, there will be cases where the client says, well, it worked. I just felt I clicked with my coach. Or there'll be other times when the, co the, the client says, well, it didn't really work. I dropped out after a bit. It didn't really, I didn't really click with the coach. I didn't find what they had to say useful or whatever. Now, is it just useful? Because probably what they were saying was useful. It was just that it was said in the conditions in which the person wasn't ready to learn or feeling comfortable enough to learn. Because learning requires being prepared to live in uncertainty, to be unsure what the effect, to make mistakes, to mess up, all of these things. And human beings will only do that if they feel a degree of safety. So if your coach doesn't make you feel safe enough, not completely safe, because they also need to challenge you. And, uh, not, no, it's not just a nice experience. But I think if you don't feel those things, then somehow the coaching doesn't work for mysterious purposes. Well, I don't think it is mysterious. I think it's essentially what I'm arguing for today, which is the quality of the relationship that's going on in the room and how the coach sets that. I think that's an incredibly helpful model. And I, I love the fact that the relationship aspect of that factors so highly that makes perfect sense when you when you consider it. It's um, very helpful. Thank you for sharing that. Could you take a deeper dive into the development relationship for us? Sure. I've done a bit of that in talking about the relationship between the mother and the child, which is, as I say, I see as a sort of foundational developmental relationship, which is not to say fathers can't do it or uncles and aunts can't do it uh, or anybody else can do it. You can. But the most basic relationship which has to work for the infant to, to even survive physically is, is that a human being is prepared to devote a great deal of their time and energy and life to uh, a growing a growing infant and if that doesn't happen the infant doesn't thrive and probably doesn't survive so that's the sort of quintessential developmental relationship and obviously psychoanalysis has spent a lot of time studying that and thinking about how that impacts people's lives and lots of events subsequent i don't want to say psychoanalysis is all about your relationship with your mother it isn't but but nevertheless it's it's a fairly basic foundation a psychoanalyst I might mention in this context is a British psychoanalyst called Donald Winnicott, who came up with the term the holding environment. Mm. And by, by the holding environment, he was, he was trying to find a phrase to describe what, what he called a good enough mother. And I think that's important. It isn't about being a perfect mother. Indeed, trying to be a perfect mother is probably a certain recipe for disaster. Right. So it's not about perfection, nor is it about being a perfect coach. Again, perfect coach is probably a rather self-obsessed coach. Good enough coach is all you need to be. 
because all the scientific evidence would say if you're good enough, doctor, coach, mother, father, uncle, aunt, teacher, leader, manager, professional advisor, if you're good enough, you'll create conditions in which your client, lucky for you, will do some work. Whereas if you try and take the problem off the client and say, well, I'll fix this for you, I know how to do this, et cetera, et cetera, you, you may well fix it, okay, on that one occasion, but what you certainly won't do is enable the client to develop skills which they can take away with them and use in their life. And I think that's a more useful thing to do because at the end of the day, in our health, we need to look after our health. There's no point in just sort of carrying on with life and then when you get ill, go and see the doctor. That's, that's, I mean, in some ways that was the old procedure, but these days anyway, quite rightly, we're counseled. It's, our health is our responsibility. So it's creating those conditions, and, and Winnicott, Donald Winnicott described it as a holding environment. Bion, I referred to, Wilfred Bion, I referred to earlier, he called similar process uh, or related process the containing function. So he was saying that's what the mother is doing. She's containing for her infant the things that, that is distressing for the, for the infant. Now, these days... People get very excited about neuroscience and brain science. And indeed, it is exciting. But what brain science or neuroscience can do now is to measure or identify or we can see visually things happening in the brain in which there are mindful states. And there's lots of research now on mindfulness to say there's a certain brain state which is associated with mindfulness. But in my opinion, this doesn't necessarily particularly explain anything. It just describes it in another set of language, describes it in a physical world way rather than a psychological world way. But actually the psychological definitions, which as I say, go back centuries, are, are, are just as viable. There's a British poet called John Keats, who died at the age of 27 or 28. But he, in trying to understand what, what a great um, artist did, and he was thinking of Shakespeare here, what was special about Shakespeare, he called it something called negative capability. And what he meant by negative capability was the capacity to remain, as he described it, to remain in mysteries and doubts without restless reaching after fact and reason. Remaining in mysteries and doubt without restless reaching after fact and reason. And perhaps you can see that that's exactly the same thing as I've been talking about before, which is the coach has to remain in mysteries and doubt. I don't know how to help this client. I'm not sure if I will. This session doesn't seem to be going very well. And I've been doing this, in fact, you said 20 years. In fact, I've thought about it. Actually, I've been doing it more like 30 years. And uh, having done it for more or less 30 years, I can tell you, not quite every session, but it's quite common. I'm in a session, I think, you know, what on earth am I going to do about this? I don't know what the client's talking about. I don't know what I should do. And if things get really bad, I think to myself, what an idiot I am even trying to do this. What's a stupid profession to have taken up? But uh, what I'm saying is it's, it's that being in that state of confusion and uncertainty that I believe the developer has to go through as part of empathizing with your client. You have to experience that doubt and uncertainty yourself. So what Einstein uh, has to say about this subject is that when he was asked, so how come, Mr. Einstein, you're, you're so good at solving problems? He said, well, it's really very simple. The, the answer is, I'm prepared to stay with the problem longer than anybody else. Most of you come up with solutions, but they're not very good solutions. I'm happy to stay with the problem for years if necessary. And then, as a result of staying with that problem, I come up with a better solution. So this is really the same thing as, as what John Keats was, was talking about, being prepared to remain in mysteries and doubts, just in case your listeners 
thought it was all just uh, poets and uh, obscure <laughs> things like that. It's also true of science, that staying with mystery and doubt is actually the route to, to making genuine discoveries. And so the same thing applies in the coaching relationship. It's the coach's preparedness and, of course, the client's preparedness to stay with not knowing the answer for long enough so that an answer will somehow emerge from the process. I think it takes quite a lot of courage to hold that level of doubt and uncertainty too. I wonder if that's you know, part of the mix there. Yes, I mean, of course, yeah. since I've been doing it all these years, I kind of know I'm going to come out at the end of it and, and I'll survive and we'll all kind of probably be all right at the end. And that's a great help because when you first start in coaching, you haven't got that experience. You haven't got years of the experience of knowing it's going to be fine. But nevertheless, I would say to the, the newly qualified coach don't think you should understand everything it's not going to be like that ever it's okay not to know and frankly it's perfectly okay to ask the client to even as basic question like well what question could i ask you that would be useful because by doing that you're empowering the client the kind of coaches who are not i think particularly helpful the ones who who insist on their own solution and say, well, my advice would be as follows. Now, that, that's fine. We, we may want to pay somebody for their advice about what, what they would do in our circumstance. The trouble is what other people would do in our circumstances and generally what we would do in our, in, in our circumstance. And I think a lot of people who, who go into coaching, certainly Mayla Campbell, you know, takes people who are pretty experienced people. They've had careers so far. They may have had careers for 20 years by the time they come to the coach training. And so they're very used to being experts and indeed have chosen a way of life, which is about knowing a lot about something. So they find learning to be a coach really quite a difficult thing because it means sitting in this uncertainty, feeling helpless, not knowing, asking questions. And as they sometimes say to me, John, it can't be as simple as all this. I'm surely it's much more complicated. And I have to say to them, no, actually, it's all about, it is all about simplicity. If you want a complicated job, I don't think coaching is really what you should be aiming for. Uh, you know, go back to your technical expertise role. Mm, that's interesting. And, and is there anything else about having more awareness of the developmental relationship that can help you as you're coaching in your coaching practice? I think tuning into your own feelings, if that's answering your question, uh, it's what mm. psychologists call mentalizing. It's a phenomenon that's been studied now for, for some years, which is there are some people who are better able to mentalize means they're able to reflect on their state of mind, their own state of mind. So I am feeling like this, what in another language is called emotional intelligence, self-awareness, mm. to be aware of your own emotional state, which, by the way, gets conveyed whether you like it or not. I call it brains copy brains. So whatever emotional state you're in, it's pretty likely it'll have an impact on the other person's brain, even unconsciously. And it's contagious in that sense. So this capacity to mentalize, meaning capacity to be able to understand your own state of mind and indeed the state of mind of others is, I think, something you can, you can learn to get better at. And there are two sorts of empathy. There's emotional empathy, which is tuning into the feelings of another person, and there's cognitive empathy, which is understanding how they're likely to be thinking about a situation. Right. Useful to distinguish those two. So we're not just talking about emotional empathy. Empathy is important. A lot is made of it in coaching, training and books and all the rest of it. And indeed it is important. But actually, I think it's important to realise the purpose of this empathy is in fact so the client can empathise with themselves. Which, you know, Because what, what you're helping the client to do is to realise they feel something. They feel frustrated with somebody, they feel despondent about something, they feel uncertain about how to act as a leader, they feel fearful of a situation they're going into, 
they feel uncertain of a situation. All of those things. It's it's about being able to tune into that state, but then not to let that state overwhelm you, and obviously then have some behaviors, actions, things you can do in response to that, rather than being overwhelmed by by feelings. So, as I say, it's 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 a ultimately it's about helping a client empathize with themselves. Fascinating. I hadn't really thought about the purpose of the empathy in that relationship beyond that it creates that kind of warm openness that you you really want to establish. So we've talked about the essence of great coaching as being um, that non-judgmental listening and creating that empathy and providing some feedback about what's going on with our clients. So why are those things so important? Well, that's that's a, that's a great question. And the way I would explain it is because we are social animals, by which I mean we are social animals. I mean, that's how we are in the animal kingdom. And therefore, our sense of being attached or not attached, our sense of being included, our sense of being connected to other human beings is critical because as a species, we survive essentially because we survive in groups. We don't survive on our own. And therefore, it's inbuilt into us to be very preoccupied about how connected we are with another person. And we think of this in psychological terms, but I think one can certainly have an evolutionary psychology type of explanation for it. That's just how social animals are. They, they are preoccupied with how connected they are. And they have a strong, therefore, need to belong and to be understood. And that understanding is, in a sense, a form of connection. If, if I'm making myself clear. In other words, it's, it's not to be understood per se. Yes, it is. But it's because if you feel understood, you feel connected to another. So the closest people in our lives, we say he or she understands me. By which we, I'm saying, from an evolutionary perspective, mean I feel this person is connected with me and therefore mm -hmm. I feel safe. And therefore, I'm in a social group I can trust. And therefore, we can survive as a social group and work together as a social group in order to, in order to survive. So I think it has very basic roots, which is why you, know, why you find the same phenomena like I was describing in the Mummy Gorilla. And so being part of a group and contributing to a group and work, which, of course, most of the coaching that we do is probably in the context in terms of people listening to, to this podcast, so people who are working with work-related situations and work is a very important source of self-esteem because it's, it's the place where we feel we can be effective, a place where we feel we can be reparative, we can make things better. Therefore helping people to be effective at work, which is a definition of what coaches are trying to do, is an extremely significant thing in a person's life. I think one of the reasons coaching has taken off uh, in, in past several decades really, hugely grown as, a, as, a, as, a, as an industry is because the institutions which previously gave people a feeling of purpose, meaning, containment, belonging, etc., are all in various ways more precarious in a way than the people in the organisations. Because the future of organisations is always up for grabs, maybe taken over, it may be closed down, its funding may be removed, whatever it is, whether it's public or private. So there isn't the sense that I can feel safe and I know what my future is in my organisation. I need to figure out for myself what my career is going to be. I need to have skills. They need to be transferable. I need to develop myself in whatever capacity I work in order to ensure a, a source of, of income and living for myself in the future. And of course, that's where coaching has, has come in and has grown so much. 
Yes, yeah, very interesting that that's linked with self-esteem as well. That I guess that's quite important, as you say, in terms of the fact that coaching is rising in popularity, that you know, people need that self-reliance more. From everything we've discussed so far about the developmental relationship, is there any specific advice that you'd like to pass on to coaches? Well, I've always thought one of the surprising things about training of coaches is there isn't actually a requirement that they receive coaching themselves, at least not from an experienced professional. They obviously practice and receive coaching from other people practicing coaching on them. But that's far different from actually employing a coach yourself to work on issues in your own work situation that you want to get better at. It must be true for everybody. That isn't a requirement, although it is a requirement in the fields of counselling or psychotherapy, other sorts of helping relationships. That's always struck me as odd. So if there's one piece of advice I will give is is really if you're if you're new to coaching or even not new to coaching, employ a coach for yourself. Do yourself a favour. After all, if this thing is so wonderful, why aren't you making use of it? I'm sure you've got things you want to get more effective at, better at, whatever it might be, and just ask yourself, you know, what could I get better at in my life? I expect an answer will occur. And then employ a coach, find a coach, an experienced professional coach, and have six or ten sessions and work on your, your issue with, a, with an experienced coach. Partly because you can't really experience what it is like to be a client unless you are a client. The only way to learn what it feels like to be coached is to be coached. And I think people are missing out, really, on that. And you'll learn... I'm fairly confident to be able to predict you'll learn quite a lot from that, and perhaps not as much as from your training, but in many ways you'll learn a whole load of things which you won't have covered in your training because it isn't in the textbooks necessarily. There's a, another thing I think that people worth reflecting on. We do various sort of psychometrics often, Myers-Briggs, the NEO or variations of that. Probably most people have done those sorts of things. There's a psychologist called David McClelland who I think produced a rather useful, simple framework for thinking about needs or, or motivations. He described three, the need for achievement, the need for affiliation, and the need for power. And he selected these three needs out of a whole set of needs with the argument that these were really key to the workplace, that in the workplace, people differ significantly on their need to achieve, to solve problems, their need to affiliate, be part of teams, and their need for power to have impact. And it's a useful exercise to, which I do with my, regularly with my clients, is just to ask them to rate themselves on these three things. And you can just rough and ready do it for yourself, one to ten. Compared to others, my need to achieve, get things done, complete problems, or to affiliate, be part of a team, or have power, have impact in my organisation. And David Kolb, who uh, your listeners may be familiar with, who invented a thing called the learning cycle, right early on in his career, did some research on the motivation of counsellors, in fact. But as I've been saying throughout this, I think any kind of helper it would apply to. And he found that the, the most effective counsellors tend to have fairly moderate, in other words, five out of 10 or not too high out of 10, five, six, seven out of 10 on, on each of the achievement, affiliation and power motives. So they were mid-range, let's call it that. Right. Whereas people who were very high on the need for power and high on the need to achieve, and low on the need for affiliation, if it's possible to follow that. So people who sought power, who need to achieve a lot, and are not terribly concerned with affiliating with others, they tended to be poor coaches, and you can probably work out why, because they're too preoccupied with their own needs. 
and, and vice versa, those who are low on power and low on achievement and high on affiliation also turned out to be not very good at counselling. And again, you can see because their need for affiliation, their need to be liked, if you will, as compared to the first group whose need was to be effective. Um, these are the kinds of things that, that get in the way of effective coaching and that, that this sort of middle middle path. And you can, you can manage your own motivations at the end of the day. You can realise, oh, well, it's my need to achieve that's making me, well, as the old joke says, the operation was successful, but the patient died. Can, yes. can be applied to coaching, I'm sure, as well. Nobody dies in coaching, thank goodness, but um, certainly some coaches are not helped very much by their coaches who are so keen on their own theory, their own methodology, the need to help. And it's a need to help, which of course makes you want to do this work in the first place, but it's a need which, which you need to be aware of and manage for yourself. Those are two excellent challenges, actually, to think about our own needs and how they impact on our coaching and also to think about being coached ourselves to learn from that process. They're excellent challenges. Good. That's been incredibly interesting. Thank you. Did you have any final words of wisdom that you wanted to share with okay, us? Okay, well, I just thought I would summarise perhaps very briefly what I've been, been saying in this talk, which is what I call the developmental relationship is a general statement, a general description of a kind of relationship that applies across many different walks of life, from teaching through to management, through to leadership, obviously to coaching, to doctor-patient relationship, to the teacher-pupil relationship. What I'm trying to get at and what I'm, I'm, I'm trying to understand more deeply is what are the essential qualities of this developmental relationship? And I've argued that it goes back in our nature as, as human animals, social animals, social human animals, that it's part of our nature to do this because we're creatures that want to be understood by others and have a need for being understood, which at root is actually feeling part of, of a group and feeling part of a safe environment. So th this capacity to coach, I think, is inbuilt into us, albeit some people are naturally better than others at it, but the others can learn if they, if they have the will to do so. Indeed, this is a small point, which I didn't make earlier, but it's an important point, which is that there's plenty of evidence that the, the clients of whatever developmental relationship it is, the clients who actually improve, get better, become more successful, whatever words you use, are those who have the strongest persistence, the strongest motivation to improve. And that that is a very critical finding in, in, in counselling and psychotherapy. Again, it's not so much the nature of the problem the person suffers from, it's their willingness to persist and motivation to change, that, that is a very strong predictor, stronger than the, the quality of the, of the coach or, or therapist in some ways. I can imagine some coaches listening to this, thinking to themselves, and especially those who are at the more performance and skills end of the spectrum of coaches, thinking, well, this is all very touchy-feely. I'm not sure it's really relevant to what I do. And I quite agree that the content is indeed important but my argument is that there's a big difference when the client experiences what I'm calling the developmental relationship in their willingness to explore, to feel safe, to open themselves up, and indeed to find their own solutions to things. And I think it can only benefit even a coaching method that's based heavily on skills such as strategic uh, thinking or performance coaching. And to put it in another way, if one speaks about farmers, you, you could say farmers grow crops, but actually it's not strictly true. Farmers don't grow crops. Farmers create the conditions in which crops grow. 
And I think it's the same thing for us coaches. In, in this summarizing, what I would say is that what I've been trying to describe is this kind of non-judgmental listening that goes back to Freud and before Freud. Listening with a third ear, as, as, as uh, one of his colleagues called it, intuitive listening, empathizing emotionally and cognitively with another person. Yes, because then you understand, but it's not your genius at understanding that matters. It's that you're, in a sense, a root back to the client when you say, well, perhaps you feel frustrated with this, or maybe you feel annoyed with that person, or maybe you feel worried about this. You're helping, in effect, what you're doing is helping the client to empathize with themselves and see that as the outcome, rather than yourself being some genius helper person. It isn't really what's required. And finally, just to end on that note, which is that I think as coaches, we, it's, our, it's our duty really to look at our own motivations to want to be a helper or a developer and to make sure that that doesn't get in the way of actually doing the helping or the developing because of our own need to have a, have a successful outcome. That's not the point. The point is, what's the client's definition of a successful outcome? And are we making progress on their definition of a successful outcome? That's perfect. What a helpful summary and a great way to round up that conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you, Debbie. It's been a great pleasure talking to you today. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure genuinely to speak to you about this. Thank you again so much. Heartfelt thanks to John for that insightful episode. And you'll likely want to look up some of the models that he mentioned. So we've listed those in the show notes. If you'd like to read those, or if you'd like to find out more about John, please look up the Mailer Campbell website at mailercampbell.com. Thank you so much for listening into our podcast. And I really, really hope it's given you some tips and some tactics and some ideas that you can put to good use in your coaching practice please feel welcome to share the episode with anybody you feel would benefit from listening to it too. And if you have a moment to rate or review the podcast in the podcast directory you're listening to us from, that would be great because it will help us to be found by other people too. Thank you so much.